Welcome. Happy Monday uh, to you and yours. I am Jason Whitlock. You are tuned in to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am your happy Monday host. Uh, now nah, I'm not even going to talk about it. I was going to tell you about why I'm in such a good mood. Uh, it, it's exercise and weight reduction related, but I, I don't want to jinx myself. I just want to tell you guys happy Monday and we have a fantastic show. Uh, plan for you. I will share, you know, <laughs> look how good I look. I don't even have to tell you. You can just look at me and say, wow, Whitlock's having some success. Uh, but anyway, I don't even want to get into that. I just want to tell you about an awesome show uh, that we have planned for you today. Uh, today is the final day of Black History Month, and I've got something to say about it. I'm going to light a fire. Uh, Dave Shannon is going to join me to talk about that, and so is Shamika Michelle. And then we will transition into some sports. The Lakers are in full free fall. Uh, they're kicking fans out of the stadium and the arena uh, to please the, the very sensitive players. Uh, LeBron James and Russell Westbrook were awful last night, seven turnovers apiece. Uh, they had a full meltdown. Uh, out in Lakerland, and we'll get into that with Steve Kim. We'll also get into uh, a discussion about uh, the Georgetown basketball Hoyas, who I think have lost 17 straight or 18 straight, something incredible. Patrick Ewing, Patrick Ewing is struggling, and we'll have a conversation. I'll continue the conversation with Steve Kim about uh, why haven't we been able to produce another John Thompson or Nolan Richardson? What happened? What changed? Uh, and so we'll, we'll get into that. Uncle Jimmy will be here uh, for the approval rating segment that we'll do on the Lakers. Uh, but without further ado, <laughs> let me get into this fire and this fire starter that I want to set. Uh, this should be good if I don't blow it. I got to do my job, which I'm going to do my job. Uh, all right, the final day of Black History Month is the perfect time to analyze the history of the annual event and explore the ramifications of it, strained from the vision of its founder. Carter G. Woodson envisioned the recording of black history as a second Bible, a mimicking of ancient Hebrews documentation of the lifetimes and impact of Jesus Christ. In 1915, Woodson, a journalist and author, founded the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History. Eleven years later, the association created, created Negro History Week, the precursor for what we now know as Black History Month. Woodson argued that the disparate plights of American Indians and Jews could be explained by one group having a written record of its history of accomplishment and the other not. Woodson designated the second week of February as Negro History Week as a way of spreading the gospel of Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass, the central white and black figures in the emancipation of black slaves. Lincoln and Douglass shared mid-February birthdays. Woodson understood the importance of building a gospel around the narrative of black people. In biblical terms, the gospel means the good news of Jesus Christ. Woodson used black history as a vehicle to disseminate the good news of black freedom. He saw himself as Paul writing a New Testament on black people's American journey. His good news approach to black history intended to define black people as key contributors to 
and irreplaceable assets for American exceptionalism. As practiced today, black history is no longer a gospel, a retelling and celebration of the good news of black American freedom. It's primarily a retelling of every atrocity, misdeed, and slight white people have committed against black people. Black History Month is the NCAA tournament for the victimhood competition. It's February Madness, a time for corporate media outlets to air content specifically designed to remind black people that their ancestors got a raw deal and that our interaction with white people determines our level of happiness and success. Black history has been turned into Satan's gospel. It's the bad news of what happened to black people at the hands of white people. Woodson's desire to cast black people as enthusiastic collaborators in American exceptionalism has been transformed into a damnation of this country's founding and narrative art. The New York Times' red-haired princess, Nicole Hannah-Jones, upended Woodson's gospel with the 1619 Project. That's why Black History Month focuses on the 1921 Tulsa race massacre rather than the mindset, philosophies, and actions of the men and women who built the so-called Black Wall Street. Do you get my point? A proper telling of history centers what the heroes did, not what happened to the alleged heroes. All right, let me explain it another way. What happened to Jesus is tragic and heartbreaking. What Jesus did over the course of his 33 years, that's inspiring. You get it now? Black history is not being told to inspire us, it's being told to demoralize us, all of us. Modern black history centers white people for a specific reason the destruction of America. It defines white people as evil and black people as irrelevant, except for what our lives say about white people. The point of black history is to argue that America was founded in wickedness and must be made anew. The truth is all nations are founded in wickedness because their founders are flawed sinners. What makes America unique is that our flawed founders recognize their sinful nature and infuse the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution in biblical Judeo-Christian principles. Our founding documents are the vaccine for evil. Just like the COVID experimentals, the documents don't prevent evil, but they lessen the symptoms. They protect all of us. The enemies of American freedom are using black history to undermine faith in our founding documents and Christian values. They're using black history and Black History Month to divide us. You can see their strategy in the 1619 Project. You can see it in small things that seem totally disconnected. Let me give you an example. On Sunday morning, my college roommates stopped by my apartment for breakfast. They turned on the NFL Network to watch a one-hour documentary on Jim Brown, the running back legend. I'm friends with Jim. I've visited his home numerous times. He's visited mine when I was living in Kansas City. I know Jim's life passion, steering black men toward behaviors that lead to success. 
I startled my college friends when I loudly complained that the documentary wasted way too much time focusing on white people. I snapped when it portrayed Brown's movie romance with Raquel Welch as some sort of legacy-defining moment. Watch this. One of the taboos that had long existed in America was this idea that black men were going to take white women. It's really old sort of uh, stereotype that comes out of slavery. And so to have a film where you have not any black man, but one of the most visible black men in the country have sex with this white woman who's been put up on a pedestal as a white sex symbol was really profound. Mm. Sure, it was a big moment for Todd's Boyd and all the other people, but I, I'm just sorry. To Jim Brown, it was nothing. Brown gave his time, money, and life to his Amera I Can program. Amera I Can worked primarily with black and Mexican gang members. Brown bought into the American system and started a foundation that persuaded other men to buy in and adopt principles and behaviors that lead to success. Pretending to have sex with Raquel Welch is way far down on Jim Brown's list of accomplishments. Jim has and had no real interest in the second place Olympics set up for black people. What I mean by that is Jim wasn't motivated by being the first black person to do X, Y, or Z. Jim wanted to be the first person. The race to be the first black person is a race for second, third, or fourth place. Jim Brown had no interest in that. He wanted to be the best, compete with the human race. Much of black history is about second place because it centers white people. Our accomplishments only have relevance and merit when they're compared to white people. The way we currently teach black history convinces black people to see the love, grace, and mercy of white people as the key to black salvation. It goads us into believing our interaction with white people is a hundred times more important than our engagement with black people. The way black history is taught powered the creation of Black Lives Matter, the political movement that prioritizes black murder based on the skin color of the perpetrator. It's why George Floyd's death, according to President Biden, had more impact on the world than Martin Luther King's. What happened to George Floyd was tragic. What Martin Luther King did was inspiring. We foolishly believe our lives are about what happens to us, not what we do. George Floyd is celebrated for winning the race to victimhood. He did nothing. He's the fastest victim in the history of victimhood. He transformed himself from a drug addict, criminal, porn actor, to African-American hero in a matter of minutes. Black history has programmed black people to memorize and recite every bad interaction they've had with white people and or the police. Meanwhile, we've been brainwashed into believing our treatment of each other, totally irrelevant. The KKK and the Proud Boys are an existential threat to the black community. The Bloods and the Crips, uh, they're just an inconvenience. 
anyone who disagrees with those assessments is a white supremacist or the black face of white supremacy. According to modern black history, Carter G. Woodson would likely be regarded as a black face of white supremacy. Mm. That's my fire for the final day of Black History Month. I, this is one of my favorite fires of all time. I, I, I have given this a lot of thought and it really crystallized this weekend uh, with, when my college roommates came and visited. We went out, had a long dinner and a lot of conversation about a, a lot of different issues, some related to race, some not. But when, you know, Sunday morning when we're watching that uh, documentary on Jim Brown, I, I just got irate because everything in the deal, it was all framed. And Jim cooperated and participated in the documentary, but <clears throat> the producers, the people that framed, there's a lot of ways to tell Jim Brown's story. And, <clears throat> and to me, the most powerful, the most accurate, authentic way would be to frame Jim Brown's story about what he did. And what he did most and most powerfully is try to uh, teach black men, Latino men, just men in general, how and why they should buy into the American system and how to buy into it and adopt behaviors that would lead to success. That's Jim Brown's legacy, not pretending to bang Raquel Welch in a movie. And there, there were other things in the doc, and it was just all written. And that literally, what I don't watch a lot of TV, uh, you know. But my with my roommates there that, that Sunday having breakfast, they watched ESPN Sports Center, and so I'm listening. And they ESPN bending over backwards. They had some Scoop Jackson eight minute, six minute segment on. Bill Pickett, some black rodeo driver or rider. Uh, and the whole, it, it was just this obsession. We have a framing everything along racial lines, framing success for black people uh, as whatever their engagement success level was for navigating themselves around white people. It, it's like, our whole universe spins around white people. And that's not my existence. That, that's, that wasn't my father's existence. It, 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 the black people I know, now again, many of them have been baited into thinking that their whole world revolves around white, but that's not the reality of their lives. I know because I'm a witness to their lives. I participate in their lives. And we'll take a, we'll spend a 24 hour day and have a 90 second interaction with a white person that may or may not go well. And we think that defines our day. Now we may have a 90 second interaction with a black person and it may go negative, but we don't think that defines our day. And so, again, that's, I was in a conversation, again, with one of my former roommates, and, and 
I was making a point about like the Bloods and the Crips and like their impact on the community. And, and he said to me, well, that has no impact on my life. That's, that's not my, that wasn't how I grew up. That wasn't, they had no impact on my life. And I, was, I, I, I wanted to say to him, but I didn't. I was like, neither did the KKK or the Proud Boys. But if someone started talking to you about the impact of the KKK or the Proud Boys, you wouldn't dismiss it. Again, because trust me, more black people living today have been impacted by the Bloods, Crips, Gangster Disciples, black gangs than they have the KKK or the Proud Boys. I've never in a real way that I can remember, maybe I have engaged with somebody from the KKK, but they weren't identified as such. I've never seen them. I know that my grandmother was impacted by them. I know that her family was. I know they claim to lynch my great grandfather, but that was not my experience. My grandmother and my mother's generation, my father's generation cleaned all that up for me. So I don't have to deal with it. But what does impact me and impacted my parents all the way through my life and my father's business, gang violence. But we've been programmed to believe that the only engagement interaction that really matters is our engagement with white people. So Jim Brown pretending to have sex with Raquel Welch in a movie, whew, that's a legacy-defining moment that must be captured in a one-hour documentary about Jim Brown's life. Do you, I mean, literally, Jim Brown and all that he's done and accomplished pretending to bang Raquel Welch. That might be the 200 millionth most important thing he ever did or has done. Again, I talk about Jim's still around and uh, I don't want to talk about him like he's dead. Jim's still around. Mind is still sharp. But anyway, uh, let's roll out to Idaho and bring out our, our Idaho potato. My brother from an Idaho mother. He's not really from Idaho, but he lives in Idaho. Uh, Dave Shannon. And Dave. The I wanna, Idaho potato. I'll, 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 <laughs> Dave, I'll, I'm going to start here with a. I, I argued in the headline of my piece is says that Black History Month centers white people, diminishes black people, and undermines America. I'm gonna start with, with, do you think the way we're practicing the telling of black history, does it diminish black people? Yeah, it does, Jason. And it's exactly what Carter Woodson was trying to get away from uh, when he started this whole Black History Week that ended up being uh, a month. Uh, he was trying to connect historically black people, not just to American history and the Christian gospel, but beyond that, to the, the world history of the Christian people throughout um, the past. So you got the children of Israel, you have uh, the people of God all the way back to Adam and moving throughout time and space, even 
even into this current situation that is America. America isn't just this isolated place. It has a history, too, that is rooted inside of a Christian worldview all the way back from the Reformation. So you got Americans coming over here from uh, from the East, from, from Europe, I'm sorry, and the gospel that's permeating from the Reformation finds itself all the way out from London, England, all the way over here to America. And what Woodson is doing is reminding black people that they are not just anchored in this time and this moment right here, but all the way throughout Christian history so that we wouldn't run into these very moments where we start centering the wrong thing. You know, Jason, someone used to tell me, it's like, who you complain to is the God that you pray to. And right Ooh. now. Say, whoa, that, whoa, 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 whoa. Say that again. That was good. Um, who you complain <laughs> who you to complain? Is, the, is the God that you pray to. And and right now, that's what we what we've been doing. We've been complaining to white people as if they're the God that's going to be able to bring us out of this. And and Woodson was trying to remind us that we have a very history ties you to a particular time and group of people so that you don't waver throughout time trying to figure out who you are or whose you are. When you forget history, people can move you and place you where they want you. And this is why in the Old Testament, uh, God reminded fathers to train up their children in such a way that when they get up, when they sit down, when they walk and when they sleep, not to forget the God that brought them out of the land of Egypt, because it wasn't about who put you in slavery. It was about who brought you out of slavery, Jason. And we've forgotten the God who has brought us out of slavery so much so that we're complaining to the wrong folks about it. I, yeah. Dave. Ooh, I mean, you've done some good work, uh, but that might be your best work. Uh, that was awesome. Uh, let me ask you a follow-up then. Yeah. Uh, and it was, it, it was about Black History, my argument that Black History Month and just the way we're practicing Black History, I believe is a strategy being executed by people that want to undermine America. Absolutely. Black culture has been a pulse of what America has been. So if you want to know how well America is doing, you can look at black people. And Jason, this whole month I've taken and I've truly tried to train my kids to remind them the historical history that they're connected to, the Christian history, as well as the current history that they're in. And when you go back and you look at moments in time and space of what God has done for his people, his the people here in America, black folks, you can't help but say, wow, whatever is happening over there in America has been amazing. When you look at the trajectory from here to where we currently are now, just in the last 50 years has been radical. And so if you're somebody who wants to destroy America, what you have to say is that the gospel, the one that forgives sins and make people act like brothers can't actually be effective in the world. And so what you have to do is say those black folks over there, all those victories, they're fake. None of them were good. And we, we, we've maybe grown a little bit like Derek Bell likes to say, maybe a little bit. But but the gospel is actually pro proclaiming a whole different message. You know, it, and this is why they got to get rid of Christianity part of this, because this permeates inside of black culture. And when we forget that, we're missing something very radical. You know, Jason, I like to say it like this. Um, the gospel is like a double edged sword. The reason that the critical race theory and social justice movement people folks don't like it is because they like to wield the type of sword that only cuts other folks. 
They like to yield a, a single-edged sword that slices everybody and everything's wrong over there, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is a double-edged sword with no handle. It cuts the person who uses it so that even we have our own sins. When the children of Israel were in Egypt, they still had to have a sacrifice blood over the door for them, even though they were the ones that were enslaved to Pharaoh. And so you're right that the goal is to get rid of the gospel and you have to attack the very pulse of America inside the black culture because that's where a lot of the evident fruit is for the evidence of the gospel. Dave, I want to, and you did a great job with your explanation, but I, I want to, you know, I'm a layman, I'm a Ball State graduate, <laughs> 2.3 grade point average. I, I, I'm going to speak to my audience, uh, Whitlock supporters, uh, and, and just explain your double-edged sword analogy. Because I, per, as soon as I heard it, I personalized it to myself because as I've become more comfortable talking about my faith, my journey, and, and, and when I uh, start talking about my faith and journey and being a Christian, what ends up happening is it puts pressure on me. It makes me constantly examine my behavior so that I'm not being a hypocrite. I'm not uh, being fake. And, and so when I start come on the show and start telling people like, hey, this is how you should think or this is how you should live or this is what you should think about this issue or whatever. And, and particularly because a lot of times I try to come from a biblical point of view, I then have to apply all of that to me. And it does yeah. cut me. It cuts me. And, and when I, because again, I, I'm like everybody else, I struggle with sin. Everybody struggles with sin. But because I'm trying to live out this faith and I'm trying to talk about it, I no longer ignore my own sins and I, you know, I'm very hard on myself uh, b because of it and very critical of myself. And that's why I try to tell people all the time and I try to make people know, like, the stuff that I'm saying, it all applies to me as well. And, and so when I'm, if I, if you hear me criticizing someone for their ego, it's a reminder to me to make sure that my ego's in check. If you hear me talking about, uh, hell, heck, uh, people's worship of white people, it reminds me, hey, don't do that. Don't have idols. Don't uh, adopt idolatrous behavior. You hear me criticizing people worship of celebrities. It's a reminder to me, like, if you, you know, deal with Snoop Dogg or whomever these fake idols are, make sure they're just human beings, flawed sinners, blah, blah, don't put them on a pedestal. Only Jesus is worthy of that pedestal. And so I love your, your double-edged sword comment. I mean, as soon as you had it, I, I thought, man, that's exactly how Christianity works for me. It makes me examine myself constantly and try to, I was literally, in a conversation or I was in a conversation where I wanted to tell the person and I made a note, I'm going to tell them that, look, man, if you really want to improve the world, improve your work environment, improve your relationship with your wife, improve the way your car drives, improve yourself. That, <laughs> that will have, if you look inward and improve yourself, 
you'll be shocked at how the people around you, the car you drive, the wife you have, the, the, the husband you have, all of that will improve as you improve yourself. So don't spend all of your energy trying to improve other people or tell people what to, hopefully you're applying that to yourself. Uh, Dave, should Black History Month, should we do away with it? it does it serve any purpose at this point? Absolutely not. We should not do away with Black History Month. Um, you know, I have a problem here with when it comes to the federal government acknowledging holidays that belong to a group of people. They don't get to tell me when and what to celebrate or they'll give me an allowance for celebrate. As far as I'm concerned, my birthday is a national holiday. And so if I choose not to show up to work, I don't need the government to acknowledge it or not. It's going to happen. I'm not going to show up on my birthday. So I have a thing about the government giving us certain holidays. This is why I appreciate what Woodson did, because he did something regardless if the government decide to give him permission to do it or not. We don't need permission to them from them to celebrate these holidays. I want to say, though, the reason why we need to keep Black History Month, particularly for black folks, and I think it's also good for white folks as well, but is that his, this history is something that belongs to us and it's something that God has been working out through time and space. And so we don't need to forget this. This is this was a very special moment in God's plan. And so to forget black history, American history and what happened and what didn't happen and what should have happened and what has happened is something that God tells us to teach our children. It's something that fathers are supposed to embrace and remind their kids the story that they are a part of so that some other theory doesn't come out here and tempt them to drift away from the foundations that they were rooted in. We should be, you know, 1920, the black Wall Street. I love what you were saying about that. We have made that moment. We've just desecrated that moment. Look what black people were able to do in that time and in that space and then continue to do after that. So that now black Wall Street is just common amongst black people. We are a pretty wealthy group of people when you look at us. And not to remember those things and to teach those things and remember to root those things in the overarching history of God's story would be an absolute failure. So we got to teach it. Let me ask you this as a Christian, though, and because I've been having this discussion with other Christians is. 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 Shouldn't we just have an American Christian history or rather than a history that's unique to a specific color? You know, Jason, I, I this is why I was saying earlier that I don't think the federal government needs to be acknowledging these things anyway. That's not their responsibility. They don't give us permission to have these things. So communities and groups of people like what Woodson was doing right in his local level, the people say, hey, this is a good idea. So I think it's good that we as a community and, and we as a people group can say, hey, guys, look, this is our time, like Juneteenth. I don't have a problem with that. I, I don't like the way it's been corrupted recently. My goodness. But this is this is great moments that God has done something for his people that I think even white people have to look at and be like, wow, look how far we've come. I want my son to know the past of what we were and what God has done and has forgiven us in what we have done. Your, your great grandfather, great, great grandfather was a slave owner. God forgave him and washed his sins away. And now we are free people that have relationships with other folks that we used to enslave and they have forgiven us. We need to be telling that story. So yeah, we need to be celebrating this as a people and as a community. Mm. Dave, that was, 
That was as good as uh, what you said earlier. Uh, I'll give you the final thought here. If you have, if you got anything else you want to get off your chest, you got like 90 seconds to do it, or we can just say goodbye. Uh, you know, Jason, I better stop while I'm ahead. <laughs> Good call. All right, Dave, we got to let you go. Thank you. Uh, Shamika Michelle is going to be next. But uh, let me tell you guys about CB Distillery. Does CBD work? Over 90% of doctors said their patients have used CBD to treat a health condition that speaks volumes about how safe and effective CBD can be. And your new headquarters for CBD products is cbdistillery.com with over 2 million customers. They are the source that I trust. Some benefits of using CBD are CBD are it helps the body recover after physical activity. It improves the quality of your sleep, and it can also provide you with a little peace and calm during your busy day. If you haven't discovered the power of CBD, you're missing out. Go to cbdistillery.com. You can order online with no prescription required and enter the code FEARLESS for 20% off. Again, enter FEARLESS for 20% off at cbdistillery.com. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, and South Dakota. That's cbdistillery.com. You guys jump on board with those guys. They support us. They support you. Uh, Shamika Michelle. Next. All right, welcome back. Time to roll out to North Carolina and bring in Shamika Michelle and get her thoughts on Black History Month. Shamika, uh, welcome back to the show. Thank uh, you for having me. You know, I've been meaning to ask you this for a couple of weeks. I don't like this doctor's office background. I want you to go back to your old background. We're going to correct that. Uh, okay, your wish is no my command. No one told me. Yeah, no, no, no one told me that we told you to go to a doctor's office and and do the show. Uh, but we'll correct that. Uh, so I want to start with. Well, I, I don't want to steer you any particular direction. I'll just ask you, what's your reaction to my monologue? Maybe the discussion you just heard me and Dave Shannon have. I totally agree with your monologue and I've enjoyed the discussion with you and Dave because what I believe is that the new leaders of white supremacy are black people. I believe that the leaders are black people and their assistants are woke liberal white women. Mm. Uh, you got to clarify that though. You say the leaders are of anti-black feelings or black people examples why do you say that so I think that so when you look at white supremacy it's the ideology that the white race is superior and the reason why I believe that the leaders of it now are black people is because those are the ones that seem to actually think that it's not to me white people walking around thinking that they are better than us it is the black people that constantly complain or constantly you know feel like they can't get ahead unless the white man gives them some type of stage or platform or validates them in some type of way that's not the way that I I grew up. I didn't grow up looking for validation from the white man. And so when you talk, hear people talk about how 
there's white supremacy, why do black people feel like they have no self-esteem or no self-worth unless uh, a white person validates them? And we consistently complain about the color of Jesus. Well, you're the one that looks at white people and feel like you're nothing unless they look at you and say it is good. <laughs> you have... I think a daughter still in high school, one in college. Uh, what do you tell them about Black History Month and their approach to it? Well, they have told me that they're tired of learning about the same old N-words. Uh, you know, they, so it's really been up to me to kind of expose them to more than just the four or five people that the schools are willing to teach them about. I agree with you. It has become, you know, what all of the negative things that happened to our ancestors. We rarely talk about the great things that black people have accomplished. My kids didn't learn about Madam C.J. Walker, who was actually not just the first black female millionaire, but the first female self-made millionaire. They learned about her at home. So, you know, that's what I teach them, something outside of what the schools are willing to teach them. I don't want them to feel like the only thing black people have in our history was just slavery and that's it. When you talk about the uh, Tulsa riots, you know, here we also in Durham, North Carolina, we were known as uh, Black Wall Street. So these things I teach them myself. Ernie Barnes, who made all of the paintings on Good Times, is actually from Durham. We had Andre Leon Talley, the the cover, you know, the first black editor of Vogue, from right from Durham. So there are a lot of things that I teach them. Shirley Caesar, right from here, the the you know queen of gospel. So there are things that I just take upon myself and not really leave to the school system because they're not going to show these kids the greatness. They want to continue to just promote the victim mentality. So I think it's up to parents to really kind of expound and expand their thinking in, in reference to the great things that black people have actually accomplished in America. We've been so brainwashed, though, and the reason I brought up the Tulsa massacre thing, because when that became popular over the last two or three years, um, in the aftermath of George Floyd, mm -hmm. uh, and, and then I, I was always baffled and stunned because black people were like, they didn't teach me about the Tulsa massacre. And I was like, and so you're upset that someone didn't teach you about an atrocity that happened a hundred years ago to some black, but you're not upset that they didn't teach you about the black people in Tulsa that built up the black. So you want to be taught about what negative thing happened to you than what positive thing you accomplished. And exactly. it, it speaks to how brainwashed we are into believing that our life is just a story about tragedies that happened to us. And, and that's why I sit here in total amazement, but in agreement with President Biden saying George Floyd's death had more impact 
than Martin Luther King's death. And when I first heard that, I was halfway offended. And, and, but he's actually right that, that we've taken a career criminal who accomplished nothing uh, of importance and was a menace to his community, but because something happened to him bad at the hands of white people, he's bigger than Martin Luther King who accomplished incredible things in his 38, 39 years of life. Uh, it, it, it just, it pisses me off. And, and so on the final day of Black History Month, I said I wanted to say something about it. I, I appreciate you. Good luck at the, with your doctor's appointment. Uh, and uh, I didn't get to get to, to the to liberal later. white women, Jason. We'll talk oh, about them. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Get it off your chest or, or you know, help, help me out here. Well, I just believe that they share a hand in actually helping black people or, you know, making us feel like victims and like we don't want to accomplish anything. They are evil to me and they have been since the time they turned a blind eye when their husbands were tipping out in the backyard and when they were too lazy to nurse their own kids. Now they still present themselves as if they are a friend, especially to black women. And I feel like it's just because they want to keep people in their place. If you are a, a threat, if you are a perceived bed wench, they want to hold you under their arm and, and be able to control you. And what they have done through feminism is to me, actually said to black women, sister, he's no good for you. Sister, I have your back. And so I just feel like we love this victim mentality and what it has done for us is created a community of bastard children who the, the mother, the father didn't just walk away, but the mother actually came in agreement with systems that kept them from these uh, children and blocked them. And now you have a bunch of lesbian women competing in, in the scissoring Olympics. So I believe that we really need to talk to these black people who are pushing white supremacy and, and check these liberal white women who are assisting them in, in making us victims and not being accountable for our own actions. Now, thank you, Shamika. Appreciate it. We're going to keep it moving. We're going to roll out to Los Angeles to bring in Steve Kemp. Uh, you guys on YouTube.com slash Jason Whitlock. Hit that subscribe notification button. Uh, Steve Kemp. It's my obligation to hate discrimination. Raising up your hands for freedom. All right, welcome back. We're going to roll out to uh, Los Angeles and talk a little. Black no, we're not going to talk black history with Steve Kim. I'm sorry, he's the Korean Cosell. He's not. Uh, anyway, we're going to talk some sports. Uh, with uh, the Korean Cosell. We're going to talk some basketball, professional and college basketball, with Steve Kim. We're going to start with the Los Angeles Lakers, who are an absolute hot mess. Uh, why don't I, why didn't I have this called up before? Steve, come on in. Why didn't I have this? What's the Lakers' record right now? 
27 and 33. Thank you, Corey. Uh, I appreciate that. Uh, and they lost again last night. Uh, LeBron and mm. uh, Russell mm. Westbrook were turnover machines. Uh, <laughs> both had seven apiece. The Lakers right now are the ninth. In my, is that is that still play-in game? Yeah, that's play-in game uh, without question uh, for the Lakers. They lose to, was it the Grizzlies last night or the Pelicans? Pelicans. Pelicans. It was the Pelicans. Yeah, the Pelicans last night. Uh, seven turnovers apiece for LeBron. And some they got some fan kicked out of the game for heckling them. Uh, and, and there's no evidence that this fan was saying anything uh, really inappropriate. Jeannie Buss, uh, I think we had, do we, we got video. I think Jeannie Buss walked out in the third quarter. Play the video of Jeannie Buss, I think, walking out of the arena in the third quarter when they're getting crushed <laughs> by the Pelicans. Uh, Damn. You could hear a mouse peeing on cotton in inside <laughs> Staples Center. <laughs> My God. <laughs> okay, Jason, that, that, that yeah. quote was from Aaron Snow Well during the Mike Tyson Buster Douglas fight at the Tokyo Dome. <laughs> now, I, I'm going to start. I, 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 one thing about LeBron, uh, he needs to sing These Are My Confessions because now he's playing Usher. Every time someone says something he doesn't like, He's going to ask them to get kicked out of the game or leave. And, and then I guess Trevor, Trevor Ariza, he got into it with fans. This is the thing. The Lakers have lost the city. They haven't. And, and we spoke about this a couple months ago. NFL and football is a more popular sport. The Rams have just won the Super Bowl. And they have superstars that are fun and productive. And with LeBron, it feels over. And I've always felt... As a lifelong Laker fan, I don't think you realize how much of a diehard Laker fan I was till LeBron got there. And then now this animosity almost that's built in inside me. Uh, I'm not going to be a Laker fan until he actually leaves. And I, I still don't even count the bubble championship as a fan. I was so detached from it. And I, I go back to the dynamic. There's still a large segment of what I call the Kobe cult that could never accept that LeBron was a Laker. Don't ever tell him that LeBron was better than Kobe, even though I disagree with that. And I think they feel the way I do. They put an asterisk by that title. And now LeBron said, and there's a famous tweet from about five, six months ago, where he talked about, I want you people to have the same energy with this roster when we're winning. Okay, well, LeBron, you wanted that energy and now it's Fukushima. <laughs> You asked for this. And, and and poor Frank Vogel. Look, I have no feelings on Frank Vogel. Congratulations to him. Obviously, he must know some basketball. It'll always say in his Wikipedia, he coached the NBA title team. But for him to get blamed for this mess that was obviously at least influenced by La GM is completely unfair. And I think that's why the city, they're done with LeBron. And, and I think, Steve... This disaster, Hollywood LeBron James, no. has been a disaster. I think it really, it's the, it's the last piece of evidence that should be used. Hey, man, stop the Michael Jordan comparisons. No. It's not the same. 
This I, I said from the I said this 10 years ago, maybe 11. He's Wilt Chamberlain. Mm. He's not Michael Jordan. He's he's a super talented freak of nature that is a little bit goofy and different. And and w- I think Wilt won one title in L.A. Is that, is yes. that accurate? One title in L.A. Again, when the Lakers acquire a Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, it's multiple titles. Uh, when they got Shaquille O'Neal, it's multiple titles. LeBron's the first megastar, and he again, he's just like, he's not a seven-footer, but he's just like uh, Wilt and Kareem, the biggest attractions, and, so, and Shaq uh, coming to L.A., and he produces an asterisk bubble title and total dysfunction and chaos, this is damning of LeBron's legacy because this is what goes along with LeBron is dysfunction, chaos, and a, a terrible uh, ending. You know, the, the Miami Heat, because of Pat Riley and how well run that yeah. organization was, was able to survive LeBron's exit, but he decimated Cleveland. And now when you start thinking about, I mean, because do the body count of all the great young players the Lakers pushed out, including Brandon Ingram yes. on the Pelicans. Yes. All this young talent they pushed out to build a championship team and to get this bubble title for LeBron. And now they got this group of old guys, injury prone Anthony Davis. This is a hot mess that damns LeBron James. Jason, in every locker room or clubhouse of an NBA or NFL team is you have a whirlpool. The Lakers needed a hot tub time machine. I mean, I look at this roster and I'm like, wow, what a team. 2015. Who thought this was going to work? I don't even blame Russell Westbrook, Jay. What did you think we were getting? (laughs) This is not on him. No. Square pegs don't die round, according to the great custom auto. Russell Westbrook didn't turn bad. Russell Westbrook's doing what Russell Westbrook. Now, you compare him to Wilt Chamberlain. You know what? I'm going to go a little bit outside the sports thing. I'm going to compare LeBron to Liz Taylor, Mariah Carey, or Halle Berry. Broken relationships. Now, everyone talks about the seven-year itch. Well, um, if you look at LeBron, seven years with the Cavaliers, great story, hometown story. But there's been a pattern here from every other franchise that he's returned to or gone to. It's called the fourth year funk. By the fourth year, you're kind of over it. Like, you, you know that relationship where you start having knockout, drag out arguments over the toilet seat being up or down or whether like you're putting away your dirty dishes or not. Um, we're at that point where it's kind of like um, Angela Bassett's character in Waiting to Exhale where the, her husband doctor was with that Becky, and all of a sudden she took every one of his belongings and burned them in the car and sold them for like pennies on the dollar. That's where we're at with LeBron. And I just look at it. Look, every team that LeBron has gone to since his first run with the Cavaliers, there's a pattern. You win a title, the hunting is great, and by the fourth year you want out. Now this guy has the nerve to say, oh, oh next team I go to, they have to take my son. Now he's become that that the baby mama that says the next guy. Well, you got to be a stepfather. Uh, sorry, I, I wouldn't do it. Don't do it, fellas. Don't do it. Listen to Kevin Samuels, Kim. Don't do it, fellas. Don't. Oh, Steve, that, that's that's good, man. 
to compare him to Liz Taylor and Holly Berry, and now he's got his son, and you got to take on the stepdaddy. Uh, that's good stuff. Don't do it. Don't do it. I, I, yeah, I, I can't top that, and so uh, we're going to move on. We're going to move off this topic. Uh, maybe I'll do better here uh, talking about Georgetown basketball. And, and look, mm. we got to take the jokes out of this topic because I, I, I'm halfway serious about, not halfway, I am serious about this topic. Uh, Georgetown, this program, this dynasty, this thing that John Thompson built in the yeah. 70s and 80s is now at rock bottom. They, is yeah. it 17 straight they've lost? Uh, 18 straight, I'm sorry. And rock bottom of the Big East or whatever conference they're in. Is it the American? Is it still the Big East? I can't remember. Uh, <laughs> uh, this Patrick Ewing has, and, and I want to remove this really from Patrick Ewing and just have a much broader, bigger discussion because I never thought Patrick Ewing was going to be this great head coach. Um, you know, th these former NBA players, and, and they all want to be great coaches, and, and I just, I didn't see it, but I think there's a bigger issue. When you think about the all-time great black college basketball coaches, you think John Thompson, Nolan Richardson, mm -hmm. yes. and John Chaney. Mm. They're all peers. They're, they're all in that same age set, same era. They're, they created opportunities for a bunch of other black coaches in college basketball. Mm -hmm. And right now, I'm at a loss to say, who is their successor? Who's the guy that's tracking the same as John Chaney, Nolan Richardson, or John Thompson? These guys' era ended 30 years ago. And... What, what has replaced them? Shaka Smart? And again, I like Shaka Smart, but uh, I, I, don't, I, I don't know. Ernie Kent? <sighs> I, I, Leonard Hamilton? Mm. Uh, but but I, I want there's been a lot of opportunities in college basketball, and we complain about the alleged lack of opportunity. In, 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 in for black head coaches. But there's been a lot of schools that have turned their programs over uh, to black head coaches. And, and why can't they have the same sort of success, somebody, any, as John Thompson, older Richard, or John Chaney? This is an interesting question. You know, when you introduced me, we talked about how Steve Kim will not talk about Black History Month. Honestly, when you look at Georgetown, I think it's an important part of black history. They were iconic. I was one of those kids of the 80s. I truly believe there are two college programs that were iconic and became a brand and culturally important. That was Miami Hurricane football and Georgetown basketball. That throughout the country, people that never went to the campus like me, they became fans. I, I still recall watching the 85 Villanova victory and being heartbroken over it. I love Georgetown. I thought they had the best looking starter jacket and it was a cool place to be. No one ever heard of Georgetown before John Thompson. Now this is interesting, Jay. I looked at John Thompson's record. I didn't realize he was actually really good and successful before Patrick Ewing. He consistently made the playoffs, the NCAA playoffs, 
before the 64 team bracket, he actually made an elite eight before that big guy from Boston came aboard. And then they became like this big franchise and they were dominant. This saddens me because I really wanted this to work. I still remember when HBO Real Sports, when I was still watching it, they did a big feature on this. But but you know what's funny, Jay? There's, a, there's an interesting pattern here. Great college players that go back to their alma mater, it seemed like the bigger, better player they were, it's almost like it's harder for them to do the job. Chris Mullen did not have a great run at St. John's. Clyde Drexler, five slam a jamma. Houston, they had a problem. He got out of there quickly. And as for Patrick Ewing, I, you know, look, he's 0-17 in his conference. That is almost a fireable offense, but it's really his first, I would say, almost, okay, almost. Well, look, he's Patrick Ewing. Who else is going to, are you sure you can get another coach that's going to want the job as much as he is? And I almost believe you owe him that. He's an iconic status. I would say, look, Pat, we got one more year here. You got to show me something. But but Georgetown's had an issue. It's what I call the Bear Bryant syndrome at Alabama. If you go back to when John Thompson, the original one, retired in the middle of the 99 season, they went to a veteran assistant of him, very loyal guy, Craig Eshrick. So he was a Georgetown guy. Then they went to John Thompson's son, John Thompson III, and now they're going to another Georgetown guy. Maybe if they want to blow this whole thing up, they got to get out of Georgetown and get a young assistant that's a coach, but you got to be able to do one thing in college basketball or football. Got to recruit. Maybe that's the biggest failure of Patrick Ewing. Well, they installed Patrick Ewing as a symbol for recruiting. They thought yes. that would be his strength. And so I, I just I don't I don't know if Georgetown as concurrently constructed and positioned will ever be the place where, uh, you know, the, the lottery picks are choosing in big numbers again. They got to yeah. find someone who can just flat out coach, yes. who can take guys that uh, are, you know, three, four star guys and over the course of three or four years build them into a team that can compete at the highest level. Uh, and, and so I, I just don't, well, Jason, you're right. One of the saddest 30 for thirties they did was the death of the big East. They did that about five years ago. I don't know about you. I always thought the big East tournament in early March was almost as good as March madness. I mean, there was drama, there were personalities, there were coaches that hated each other. They had the best fights and guys would still not get suspended because it's the big East. And now that they're kind of like this nomadic program and this conference that we're not even sure what conference they're in until yesterday, Jay, we have to be honest about it. Georgetown is no longer one of those, those programs that if you're a top 50 player, you say, yeah, Georgetown is on my list. And that's sad because I still remember, forget Ewing. I remember one of the all time great names, Horace Brodnax. I mean, that's a guy right there. He just sounds tough. Gene Smith actually tried out for the Raiders, David Wingate, uh, Ralph Dalton, And now I I can't name a single Georgetown player after Jeff Green played there 14 years ago. And so maybe that job is better in terms of stature and reputation than the actual job as it is currently constructed. I agree with you on that one, Jason. And so what Georgetown should be aspiring at this point is to be what Butler was under Brad Stevens. 
And that's, again, why you, you got to get a great X's and O's guy that can take some decent uh, Gordon Hayward and elevate him, raise him up. Block. Th- that's Georgetown's path. I, I want to go back to, Stephen, I'm not going to force you to have some kind of provocative take on this because I, I, I may write about this tomorrow and, and, and circle back on it after I've had more time to explain my point of view. But here's the top uh five or six black coaches in terms of winning the last mm-hmm. 50 years john thompson ola richard john cheney big house Gaines, clem haskins tubby smith george raveling again that's all yeah previous generation and again what where i'm gonna go with this is like these these guys all came out of uh, the generation of black people that had fathers. Mm. And, and they had a set of values that actually worked in America. And I'm telling you, this generation that has replaced them and come up from underneath them comes out of a black culture that doesn't have fathers, has a different set of values than what have traditionally worked here in America. And, and so th- these guys created a bunch of opportunity. What have the, pre- what have the, the, the following generations done with that opportunity? They haven't maximized it. Th- there should be someone we could point to and say, that's the next John Thompson or Nolan Richardson, or, or you know, he's tracking like those guys. And there just isn't. There just isn't. It's sad. Uh, I'm going to expound on that, I think, a little bit more tomorrow. Uh, Thank you, Steve Kim. Uh, We're going to let the Korean Cosell go. Uh, You don't have on Fearless Swag today. You're actually promoting the Three Knockdown podcast. You think Mario Lopez needs promotion? Uh, All right. uh, Get your Fearless Army swag at shopblazemedia.com slash fearless. Uncle Jimmy and our approval rating segment on the Lakers. We must exist in a state of man glorious as we are protected by the red, the white, and the blue. But remember, the mind is the key. The fearless soldier pledges to place God first and foremost in his everyday endeavors of life. We, the fearless army, are one nation under God, indivisible with freedom and a belief in the American dream. The men bold enough to join our movement comprise what we like to call the new dream team. We are leaders of our families, our churches, and of this nation. We reject the seeds of division that are planted by corporate media misinformation. We affirm that all men are created equal and are endowed with inalienable rights, which are granted by our Heavenly Father. We are bound by honor to accept God's challenge, to take the flag and lead, to cherish, to protect, 
and to nurture the life of our unborn seed. I am a fearless soldier, so shed no tears for me. I am not a victim. I am the man that God made me to be. Amen. All right, welcome back. Time for the approval rating segment. Uncle Jimmy is here and appears to be in uh, good spirits. We always, had an awesome, always. awesome show today. I mean, you, fabulous. What? Your guests were damn good. Seriously, your guests. <laughs> you outkicked your coverage with your guests today, man. I just want to tell you. Uh, Jim, what about... You know what? I'm, can I put your business out? Can I put your business out? Because you, 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 you dropped a little caveat early in the show. You dropped a little <laughs> no, I don't, caveat. I don't, I don't want to talk about that. You could jinx it. You could jinx it. I'm, I'm, that's why I held back. I can't talk about you wearing skinny jeans. <laughs> no, 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 no. If you get in them skinny jeans, I owe you a steak, boy. I'm just <laughs> telling you. I'm sorry. I'm just telling you. Come on. I'm just letting I'm you know. closer. I'm inching closer. Uh, but anyway, yeah, the, the, what do you think of our Black History Month discussion? Um, Jim, this is... I'm tired of Black History, man. I'm tired of Black History Month. I'm tired of being able to use the excuse of, you only taught me this during this month. Man, I didn't even want to say. You know, man, back in the day, they used to have a phrase that said, if you wanted to keep something for my people. Write it down, put it in a book. Hide it in a book. <laughs> in today's era, yeah. who do we have to blame for our lack of knowledge? I mean, if, if I want to know a, a fun fact or Google, if I want to Google some black history, it's there for me every day. Well, part of what Carter G. Woodson was attempting to do was basically write a black history, a positive one about our accomplishments, blah, blah, blah. And, and, and then through integration, we then handed off the assignment to white people and said, well, now it's the public schools and, and the schools where there are no teachers that look like us. It's your job to teach black history. And if you don't, I'm mad at you. Well, what about the fact, are you teaching in these school systems? Be mad at yourself. If, if you were here running school system to school, you teach whatever the hell you wanted. Ba you know, whatever you wanted is a little strong, but I, I, I just think that we, like we tend to do, we want to turn everything over to white people. Now y'all make it better. And then get upset when, well, you didn't season this the way that I wanted it. Where's the Lowry's? Where's the seasoned pepper? Y'all ain't got no hot sauce. sauce. <laughs> <laughs> this chicken ain't fried. I like it fried. Why'd you bake it? I mean, <laughs> because uh, it helps you live longer. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I just that's and and, and that, that's that, that's it. And and look, I don't want to go off, but you have to understand something, man. Let, let, let's not act like 
we're, we're not a hundred some odd years just getting away from the plantation. So there was a time that we needed that calendar. 160 years, go ahead. Okay. I didn't want to try to put, pin it down. But there was a time we needed that calendar that you turned it over and every month it showed you. Remember that calendar yes, we had? Yes. And it, mm. We needed that. I mean, honestly. We don't have that excuse. There was a time we wasn't allowed to read. So, you know, there was a time that it was like that. And we needed to be, t- but it's not there no more. Okay. Don't be mad at somebody else because you didn't know how to read. Mm. Come on, man. Uh, uh, Great show. I, I, I want to say this real quick before I forget. I remember you might. Your, your, your crew, I, I, your, your accumulation of soldiers, th- 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 this, this kind of start, it's starting to remind me of Motown. It's starting to remind me of Motown. Because, you know, Motown had an accumulation of stars. And if you listen to them, when they, Motown, Smokey Robinson, Stevie Wonder, Mark, there was a competition amongst them. Okay, and this is why they always put out hits. Okay, this is... I have come to the conclusion, I'm going to be the one to say it. I mean, you're starting to piss your people off talking about how smart Delano is. Because I don't know if you notice or not, man, but your, your guests have been coming bringing the heat. I, I would agree. Uh, Delano is the Michael Jackson of Motown, but Aretha and, and everybody else is coming for the if, crown. Hey, man, let me tell you this. <laughs> if Delano is Michael, then, 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 then Dave Shannon is Jermaine. Because <laughs> I'm going to tell you, man, Dave Shannon came out here on fire. I don't know if he was upset that you called, you called him an a, a Idaho potato. <laughs> but, hey, man, Dave was on fire, man. I agree. I mean, honestly, man, he, hey, I, I love it. What was it he said? You complain. He said the, who, who you complain to who is the God you pray to. Yes, that was all. He should just drop it and walked off, man. And, and I like it. He said, "You said I'll give you the other. I'll give you the final if you unless you want." He like, "Nah, I'm good. I'm gonna leave it at that." <laughs> That's a good job, man. Honestly, I was, I, I, I'm serious, man. I, 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 I miss seeing him, man. He, he bought the heat, man. I love him, man. And, and and then, like you said, we had Aretha. You know, R E S P E C T. Hey, man, I, I gotta say this, and then we just heard him get go. Hey, man, what the hell did you do to Shamika? What do you mean? Shamika was a preacher, <laughs> a dancer, <laughs> an author, and now all of a sudden, she a damn receptionist. <laughs> <laughs> the hell you done done? Where my Mika? She used to have that little silhouette of her. Uh, it's coming uh, back. <laughs> and he said, anything for you, Jason. <laughs> Get my Shamika back here, man. <laughs> and I think everybody else out there <laughs> Dress like a reason. I'm going to take my blood. <laughs> Come on, man. I agree. Uh, and then uh, Steve Kim. Kim. Steve Kim. Love Steve Kim, man. Uh, one thing he said was, I, I, and talking about college basketball, I really forgot about the Big East and when we get to this time of year and what went on with Georgetown and Syracuse, Syracuse and all of that when you're talking about John Thompson. That's, that, that, that's, that just goes to show, once again, how, we, how times have changed. I, I'm going to get deeper off into this John Thompson thing, I think, tomorrow and talk about black coaches. And, and I, I think it helps or it 
illustrates my larger point about what's going on with black coaches that the rest of the media uh, refuses to talk about. But uh, let's get let's to go, our man. approval rating. Let's uh, do it, man. The Los Angeles Lakers <laughs> I'm sorry, who are I'm sorry, imploding and blowing up as we speak. Uh, I don't, job performance, can't, you know, what are they, 27 and 33 or something like 27 that? 27 and 33. Yeah. Six uh, games below 500. Yeah, the ninth seed right now uh, in the West. Uh, I got them at a 10 in job performance. It's a hot mess. It could actually be lower than that. They got blown out by the Pelicans. I give them a 12. Mm. They say the proof's in the pudding. <laughs> hey, look here. Right now, the proof's in the eye sockets. Because <laughs> the eyes don't lie. <laughs> The Lakers is like my ex-wife. They suck. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, you know what they say in football, the eye in the sky don't lie. And so same thing, what we're seeing, believe it. That's how I find out about my ex-wife. Keep going. Uh, (laughs) Character, I'm not a big Russell Westbrook fan. Down on his character. Obviously, you know, I have my thoughts on LeBron James. Uh, Anthony Davis gets hurt every other game. Uh, A character, I got it at four, pretty low. Mm, I'm better than you. I give him a five. (laughs) Because first of all, the team ain't got enough characters on it. Okay, remember if you remember Lakers, Showtime. What what, what did you have? Big Diesel, right? Shaq, the Mamba, right? Kurt Rambis, Clark Kent, remember? Come on, man. Ron Artest. Remember he, Remember him? He the world needs peace. Yeah, the, he had a cup of coffee with him. Okay. All right, man. Magic, look. He had magic. You ain't the captain. The, the, I'm, I'm, I'm saying it. The, you know, Wilt the Still. Yeah. You ain't got none there now. None. So that's not the Lakers, man. Come on. Got LeBron. That's it. All right. That's uh, it. Authenticity. <laughs> LeBron's too passive aggressive for me to respect the authenticity of the Lakers, so I give him a six in authenticity. I give him a 21. How? Because Laker fans are some of the most loyal fans that you will ever find in the business. They stick with their fans, and they stick with their team to no end, no matter what. And you can't take that from the Laker fans. Matter of fact, look, at here's a shot of Laker fans right here. Let me show you what I mean. Show that real quick. Yeah, that, that's the owner of the team. That's not a fan. Oh, <laughs> damn, my fault. <laughs> I just thought it was loyalty. They kicked the fan out of the game last night for heckling him. You can't even heckle the, the terrible team. All right, it factor. Uh, I've got him at a 20 because the Lakers are the Lakers. They got a lot of history. The reason we're talking about them, even though they're 27 and 33, is because they have an it factor. They got it, so I'm going to give them a 20. It's, it's not shining as bright as normal, but I'll give it a 20. All right, man, I'm going to give them an 8 for it. Because it ain't your father's Lakers. <laughs> it ain't your granddaddy's Lakers. I don't know who the hell these Lakers is, but they ain't doing it for me. Mm. Mm. All right, well, that's a good note to end on. We both got them at a dumpster fire. I got them at a 40. You got them at 46. They're, do- they're dumpster fires. They're a dumpster fire. I was going to say dumpster fires. They're All there. right, there's tomorrow. That means we'll see you tomorrow. And I like having tomorrow in my ear.